And everyone's like, you can't write that. Jeez, <laughs> that's a line too far. <laughs> and I'm like, the threesome question was fine. Wow. And that's where I knew I was in corporate America. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to board game designer Rob Davio, best known for his work on Rust Legacy and Pandemic Legacy. So, uh, where I usually like to start with is, um, what's the first, what's the first game you remember? Normally, I say video game, but in your case, it might be board game. Um, that really. Uh, I remember two things. I remember the Uncle Uncle Wiggly, okay, board game. <laughs> you can which, vaguely remember that. Uh, I think it was Milton Bradley and Park Brothers in different years. So I don't remember which one it was. Mm-hmm. I remember it had red cards, like event cards, and like rhyming couplets. Okay. I think it was also vaguely racist in retrospect. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I remember playing that as a kid. I remember playing Candyland. Yeah. And I remember playing Gin Rummy with my grandmother. Okay. So Candyland was, I remember because I was in an apartment. It was like three. Mm-hmm. Uncle Wiggly, I have a memory of it in my next house where I would have been five or six. And my grandmother, not sure, probably like five or six. So I couldn't hold the cards. I would stack a pillow on the couch and mm-hmm. put them behind the oh, pillow. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Did, uh, did you get really into board games as a kid i did i did my mom was really into it my dad a little less so so we had games i mean they weren't super in depth but i had a lot of games from the when i was a little older like late 70s early 80s that Mm -hmm. were like electronics in them okay or board games um all the classics my grandmother um had a lot she had a lot of kids Mm -hmm. my mom's one of the oldest so she had kids that had just gotten out of the house when i was a kid Mm -hmm. and uh, her basement had a lot of board games as well. So like when we go over there, she was next town over. Okay. I used to go down and play them. I had a real a fondness for them. Okay. Did uh, yes, I mean back then there wasn't the variety that was available, or maybe there was a huge variety, but there wasn't like there was a lot of different games, but they're all kind of like variations, kind of on the same thing. Yeah, but I was um, like you know seven. What yeah. did I know? Right. <laughs> I'm fine that they were all the same, or that they were all kids' games, or bad path games, or they were just magic to me. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of the first. One that like really connected. No, there was a Star Wars game that came out in 1970. It's not a video game, but it was an electronic game, which is like okay. a, a battle command, just red LEDs like on a grid, and oh, you had okay. to, but you could go to different sectors, and there were rules. I still have it. It still works, except the LEDs don't light up, so you can't mm. play it. Right? It the code still works. Um, but I remember Christmas morning when I was eight, or Christmas day, mm-hmm. like everyone else having Christmas dinner. I just grabbed something and sat on the like little landing on my stairs and played that all night. Right. Did you play? Did you play video games too, or were you? I like, had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Okay. Played a lot of that. Um, had a Commodore Sixty Four. Okay. And played a ton of early to mid eighties video games. Okay. A like ton. Which, which types? Impossible Mission. I don't know if you remember yeah, that I remember game. That. I love Impossible. I still love Impossible Mission. I'll, I'll pull up a simulator about or emulator like uh, every other year. Really? And play it. Wow. Is that, is that the one with the elevators? Another visitor. <laughs> Stay a while. Stay yeah. forever. Yeah. And it was the elevators and the rooms, and um, I played all the Infocom games. Okay. Uh, Jumpman Jr. was mm-hmm. a big one in my um, packet. 
Did you did you finish Infocom games? Yeah. Yeah. Without without hints. Without hints. Just, wow. As a kid. As a middle school. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Um, Which ones were your? Do you think were the best? The ones I liked at the time were the Enchanter series. It was Enchanter and Sorcerer okay. and yep. Spellbreaker. Wish maybe. maybe. Wish Wish that might be different. Maybe. I played the Zork ones. Yeah. It was a little harder, a little different. Um, Infidel out in the desert, lurking mm-hmm. horror, which was like an MIT Cthulhu horror yep. game. Some of the other ones, like the missed, uh, played uh, uh, what was it? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other ones like Witness or Deadline, which were more timed. Time like you had to like be in the house, and yet you had to play at different times and then put it together. Yeah, it was sort of a little hard for me because I couldn't blunt force and I had to start over. Yeah, yeah, um, I never got through those, but I thought the idea was really fascinating. Yeah, I think it was just a little too young for him. Like I would like them more now. Yeah, actually, I have all of them on my phone, mm. but it's just it's a bad. <laughs> it's, not- it's a bad interface, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, so you beat most of the games without hints. That's, that's some serious perseverance, I would think. It was a friend and I bit together, and we would circle okay. back, and we yeah, would sure. do things. And or I think... That helps a lot. We There was like a magazine or bookstore where we could go find some hints or something. Like if it would be some gaming band, magazine yeah. that yeah. would, like, tips on beating Zork. I remember I found one of the 20 treasures like that we couldn't find was in a magazine. Like, here's a list of all of them and where to find them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't. I then was in high school, so I missed the next gen consoles like the NES and mm-hmm. and things like. I just never got into that in the first PlayStation. Right. And then the reason I think I'm a board game designer, not a video game designer, uh, comes down to the fact that I've been a Macintosh user since 1988. Okay. Yeah. So if I you had a Mac in the 90s, other than a handful of games here yeah. or there. There really wasn't much going on. There wasn't much going on, and so I just moved uh, away from games in general. And I played some D and D still, and I moved away from board games. There was no what video. What were game. you? What were you doing in the nineties? Like, what was your? I finished college in ninety two. I was going to be in television as a comedy writer. Okay. Uh, and then worked in television. Really? Uh, well, as an intern. Okay. I was an intern for David Letterman at his original NBC show after Carson. Okay. And I was right. an intern yeah. there. The. What does that mean? What does uh, hello, late li- hello, late night. Yeah. And they're like, uh-huh, may I ask who's calling? Yeah. Please hold. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Frank, it's this guy. Tell him I'm in a meeting. Yeah. I'm afraid he's in a meeting. Uh, it was photocopying scripts. I did get so you, to go down and... You were at step one, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was uh, Paul Schaefer's assistant intern okay. left. He was on a trimester program, so he mm-hmm. left early, so I picked up that internship, and that was cool because that was every day getting the band set up. Mm-hmm. And then sitting in the guest chairs on the set watching, like, Blues Traveler rehearse. Mm-hmm. And if anyone needed, like, anybody need any water? And right, then I would yeah. go get water. I was just basically a gopher and a roadie to get water. So I sat from, you know, me to you five feet away from all these 1992 hit bands. Right, right. So that was fun. <laughs> um, then I didn't want to do that. I actually worked in a toy store. Okay. And I worked as a cook. Wow. And then right. I was an advertising writer. For five years in okay. Philadelphia and Boston, right, uh, and then I wrote an article for Dragon Magazine. Were you so during all this time when you're kind of winding through different yeah. jobs? Were you interested in games? Were you following? I mean, especially in just the '90s, like there was a kind of a huge change in, in board game design at this point. Um, that was in '96, and I was totally unaware of it. Yeah. Okay, so you just uh, didn't what know I, what was happening. What I did do was a friend in my, uh, and I in college came mm-hmm. up with the most sprawling epic and in my mind awesome D mm-hmm. D adventure okay. ever created right. um i'm sure it was just amazing <laughs> I, I, I actually believe you. i mean i still look at it now like 
25 years later with uh-huh. a professional sign go, ah, there's a lot of good stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was doing a ton of game design, and you know, so you we, made a campaign. Did you have a group of players who played it regularly? So we designed it in college. We had various people. We designed something that we could play test over like holiday break, and then it just got away from us and turned into something. So we played like bits and pieces of it. We're like this is good. We're going to finish it. It was probably ten times longer than that. Right. So we kept working on it after college. I was in Philly, and he was in New York, and then I got a whole group to get together to play it. It took. 40 play sessions oh my gosh of three hours each over the course of two years wow but it was finished so i was really into that so then i moved to boston that's a that's a huge endeavor i mean yeah part of me wants to like knock on wizards of the coast door and be like hey i got this thing do i have a name yet enough that you'll (laughs) listen to me do it right yeah Uh, um and um but i wasn't paying attention to any video games i wasn't paying any attention to board games and, I, and you were just doing it just because you loved the experience. Like, you loved yeah, the process. Yeah, it was just my, I just loved making games, and I yeah. liked making creative things. And Did you ever daydream about becoming a game designer? At not the at the time. time. Yeah. I really liked my first advertising job. Okay. It was a small little family-run creative boutique, and our clients were like the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team and Hershey Park Amusement Park, and I was 24 years old and yep. working on these big A-list uh, clients, and it was such a small place that I had a disproportionate amount of responsible. I was 24 years old with an intern and a million dollar budget to go write a yeah. uh, amusement park commercial. So yeah. I'm like, well, this is how the world works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I, I took another job in Philly for the money. And that's why I learned don't take another job for the money because mm-hmm. that wears off real fast. Sure. Yeah. Just a bigger advertising firm or something? Oh, is this another firm? And they're like, oh, you're not getting paid up. This, this family one place, they would hire people young mm-hmm. and work them hard, but underpay them. And so I was like, I'm not being paid my worth, which I wasn't. Right. And then got lured away by another company that had a drier corporate stuff and a lot of business to business. Like my first day was we were like, hey, you have to write a brochure for a forklift company to sell forklifts to warehouse managers. Yep. I was like, oh. <laughs> like I wasn't even through lunch and I knew it was a mistake. Yeah, no, I made a terrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Then I moved to Boston. Uh-huh. And I was working, I couldn't get things going there for advertising, so I wrote a, I found, was in a D&D group. Right. I found a D&D group there. One of my best friends, he's been in my wedding, we hang out all the time, we met through uh, Usenet, rec.games.dnd, mm-hmm. yep. and, and formed a D&D group in Boston, just two strangers. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm having fun, I was always the DM, or often the DM, and was running things I'm like, ah, I'm bored. Go Dragon Magazine, you know? Mm-hmm. Now we have online submissions. It's 1998. Okay. So unaware of Settlers of Catan or board games, but I, I pitch them a artic- bunch of articles. They say, this one sounds interesting. I um, Articles about what exactly? Well, Dragon Magazine at the time was just tips on running D&D. Okay. So the, the one that they, they accepted and I ended up writing and then it got in the magazine was how to take everyday news articles as inspirations for a session, hmm. right? Like how to find an article in the newspaper right? and Some be like, thing happened and, right. something happened. And then like how to basically very quickly turn that into that night's session. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't have an idea or to use it as a starting point for right. uh, like one-offs. Right. Rip from the headlines. Rip from the headlines. <laughs> and so it we just talked about the theory and gave a couple examples how to do it. And they're like, this is good. We're going to buy it. And it yep. was, sent me a check for like $130 and it was the most wonderful thing I had ever done professionally having Mm -hmm. been out of college for six years, seven years. 
And uh, that was a real awakening. Like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to get paid to do this? To do this, right. But it was role-playing. Mm-hmm. And I knew there wasn't a lot of money. Yeah. And I think TSR was just about to or just had been bought by Wizards of the Coast. Okay. So I was aware of Magic. I had mm-hmm. played Magic the Gathering, which had come out a few years earlier. Right. But I'm like, well, this company just got bought. D&D's over. It's not like there's going to be a lot of money. It's not... I don't know if there was ever a lot of money, but it was still on the upswing in like 1979. Right, right. So I'm like, I'm going to quit my advertising job or go switch to be freelance four days a week. And on Fridays, I will write role-playing stuff that I don't expect to make any money, but will be fun. Will be fun, yeah. So I'll I'll work 80% of the time for the money and 20% of the time for my passion. Right. And then... Now, did you think you you this was you thinking beyond articles like you wanted to write like modules or campaigns or whatever like is that what you're yeah trying to I'll, do? I'll I will write role playing things like yeah. a whole game or yeah. a supplement and and work my way up the ladder okay was there a clear thing of what to do with them at this point like like TSR I would have like a place to send this stuff or I'm sure there was. I mean, really, it was a half-formed idea. Okay. So you didn't necessarily know what you were going to do with it. Yeah, it, so. which is funny because despite having a half-formed idea, I went and quit anyway. Right? Okay. Like if I if my kids my <laughs> kids are you know teenagers now and if they told me this plan, I'm like, why don't you quit until you actually research the work right. environment and how it works and things like that. Presumably this was before you had kids. My wife was uh, either pregnant or we were trying to get pregnant. Oh, we well, this. all right. Excellent. <laughs> Great, good plan. Yeah, it was a really good plan on my part. <laughs> and so I do this, and actually what happens is I'm going to bed like two weeks later, and I'm and she's pregnant at the time, so I guess I knew when I quit. Uh-huh. But I still had this mindset of whatever, you know. And I'm brushing my teeth, and I'm like, what did you just do? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you're going to be a father, and yeah. like health insurance, and all these things. And then I get into bed, and ten minutes later, I'm on the phone with my doctor telling him I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> Oh, no. And then they asked me to describe the symptoms. They're like, "Do you have any stress in your life? Because this is a chronic anxiety attack." Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, and I explained like, and I'm like, "Oh, I gave myself a full out going to die anxiety attack." Yeah, yeah. A lesson learned. Wow. Okay. So what what happened then? Like you started. You so started then, so in and... my in my head, I was like, "Oh, I should probably have something that's a little more stable." Mm-hmm. And either because of that, or I, you know, I never really quite put together why I ended up looking through the classified ads at the back of the Boston Globe Sunday right. magazine. My my wife was visiting her family. It was this pouring rainy day in Boston, so I read the entire paper cover to cover. I'm like, I'll look wow. at the classifieds. Okay, right? I maybe I maybe this plan doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And in the back, I see that Parker Brothers on the North Shore is hiring a copywriter to write box bottom copy and sales copy. I'm like. Well, maybe that's a foot in the door, and that right. sounds like a really boring job. Mm-hmm. But it's with a company that makes. Games. Yeah, I'm, it's. I'm not going to turn down a job I don't have, and maybe mm-hmm. I can just freelance for them, or be, you know, maybe put together a little more money and, and get a foot in the door and start working on this. So I apply. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a copywriter, and I wanted to be in television, and I had wanted to be a comedy writer. So my resume and cover letter are very. I mean, they're factual, but they're very tongue in cheek. They're not sure. corporate. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, I just talk about how much I like games and Dungeons and Dragons and all this, and I'd love to do it. And then I send it off and I don't hear anything. And mm-hmm. I kind of forget about it and go about my life and continue to have anxiety attacks and everything. Right. And about three or four weeks later, they call me and they're like, we'd like you to come in and interview for that job. And I was like, wow, I forgot. <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, I don't tell them that. You know, you bluff yeah. through. So I just make plans to drive up and go. Now, what I didn't know was behind the scenes, 
the woman who ran the copywriting department got my resume and said, um, this guy doesn't want to be a copywriter. He has more of a game design passion. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were hiring that job and a lot of jobs... They, how could they see that through your... Just from the tone about how much I like games. And I okay. talk... I, I think in my cover letter, I was like dropping like Thacko references from the <laughs> okay. second edition, right? Like, right? And I was like, oh, should I do that? Now, in retrospect, Hasbro such a corporate place. If you did that now, you would never get a foot in the door. Okay. But I'm like, I want them to know who I am right from the beginning and either buy in or not. Right. And so when I didn't hear, I'm like, guess they didn't buy in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hasbro at the time, and it continues to do so, did a series of mer- uh, mergers and moves. Mm-hmm. And they had just moved the Milton Bradley Group from Western Massachusetts to the Parker Brothers location and combined those two companies. So not only were they did they have the job I was applying for, they had like 30 or 40 jobs from people who didn't move. Oh, okay. And they had outsourced it to like an HR agency who was like trying to, you know, fill all these spots. So not only was the copywriting position open, but there was a game design position, which was like game design writer. So someone who worked in game design, Mm -hmm. but would handle Trivial Pursuit or uh, Taboo at the time, what they called, and I still have the term, cardware. Games Uh with a lot of cardware in it. So someone who could do word games and Scrabble and stuff. Yeah, there must be a lot of writing in a Trivial Pursuit game, so... I mean, yeah, well, the person who's in-house at, at Hasbro is always the um, editor, and mm-hmm. then you outsource it to, to writers. Yeah. So this woman took the time to go down a floor and walk across and say to this guy, Mike Gray, well, here's this resume of this guy. I think he might fill that writer position because he applied to my job, but he looks to be more of a game designer. So when they called me to interview for the job, it was for a game design job. But wow. because it was an external HR agency and so much was going on, no one told me that. <laughs> So I show up to interview for the writing position yeah. and get into, and I'm going to have five or six rounds of interviews mm-hmm. during the uh, day. And no one's telling me what, what you're applying for. Yeah. And I get into the interviews and I'm thinking 28 years old, like this sounds like a game design job. Right. Why are they asking me all these questions? And I was like, oh my gosh, I could be a game designer. Right, right. And I started, I don't want to say bluffing, but... Let's go with improving. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good distinction. Um, because everything I was saying was either factual or the normal amount of bullshit that you throw out into a corporate interview. Right. Um, now it turns out that they were doing a Trivial Pursuit NFL version, mm-hmm. and I and I was and continue to be a football person. Yep. And that Star Wars Episode One was coming out the next year, and always have been a big star wars fan and could talk so when i talked to a star wars guy and he was asking me i was just keeping up and then yep. the guy's like well do you know anything about football and i was mm-hmm. keeping up and then they were asking about marketing and writing like in the writing department i was in advertising so i just happened to have exactly. the skill set they wow. needed and um i got to this interview with mike gray mm-hmm. who just retired a couple of years ago but has been around he worked at Milton Bradley, and then a brief stint at TSR mm-hmm. when D&D was big. Like, he hung out at Gygax's house and invented mm-hmm. the barbarian character with him. Oh, right. um, and he was probably the age I am now, or a little older, like almost 50. Mm-hmm. And he starts interviewing. And he's a great guy. He's a real child at heart mm-hmm. and wears his heart on his sleeve and, you know, is very transparent. So he starts talking about, like, well, what board games do you like? Now, remember, I've been doing role-playing stuff. I didn't know, and uh, there's no internet. There's no board game geek to research. I didn't even know I was going in for this job. Yep. So I'm interviewing with him and the guy who runs the department with, 
and I start just naming the games that have been in my grandmother's house when I was a kid. I was like, well, I know the Monopoly and the Clue, and you know, I'm like checking the list of games I had seen around the office that I guess were their games, like you know, like. <laughs> right. And I said, but the games I really carried with me are, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons continues to be this huge thing for me, and I love mm-hmm. the sense of adventure, blah blah. And I go, and then there's two other games, just a little off the beaten track. One's called um, Pathfinder, which mm-hmm. is a maze building game, mm-hmm. and the other one was Dragon Master, which was a trick taking game that I really enjoyed. And Mike goes, I worked on all those games. <laughs> and I just happened to name like right. Dungeons and Dragons, which he worked on, and then two obscure games from 15 to 20 years ago that he wow. had been the designer or co-designer on. Wow. And then he said, when can you start? And wow. the other guy, like just out there, and the, the other guy's like, Mike, 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 like we don't, we don't, we don't. And I said, actually, I'm freelancing. I can start tomorrow if you want, right. right? Like whatever it wants. And so I knew then that I had a shot. And uh, I got a call a couple of days later to you know that I got the job, and negotiated salary, but they were in no hurry, so I took three weeks off, stopped mm-hmm. having anxiety attacks, right. had a corporate job full time with health insurance and wow. benefits, and started in November of '98. Wow! So if you look at that at a high level, you kind of like there's like luck on top of luck on top of luck that this all came together, right? Like, yeah, you had to be. There's only so many cities in the country. Period that would have this type of yeah. job available and that they need, they suddenly needed all these game designer positions. They interviewed for one that you didn't even know you were having and you had like the background for yeah. what they There's, were looking for. Yeah. I mean, I always paint it as a lucky story and I'm not discounting luck. I think it was Branch Rickey, the baseball manager mm-hmm. who said that luck is the residue of preparation. Sure. Yeah. Right. So on one hand, I was very qualified for that, right? Yeah, like yeah. I was, Oh, you were definitely qualified. I was qualified, and I was looking to get into the yeah. industry. Mm-hmm. I just happened to succeed, not in role playing, but in board games. My first try, almost by accident. But I probably, you know, memory being what it was, I may have seen three other jobs there, or I might have looked the next week. I might have applied for other things. Yep. Um, I was already pitching articles to Dragon Magazine. Like all of those things get lost to history. It's just that I, I yep. started fanning out and just got lucky right away. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of luck in there. Yeah. No, I mean that's a good point. I think a lot of um, so I, you know, I talked to a lot of designers about how they got into the industry. It's like a common thing that comes up with these podcasts, and a lot of the stories end up being kind of these like crazy things of everything kind of came together in this this way that, that got the job to work. But then you also you got you look at like all the stuff that they were trying to do, and for most of the people, you kind of think that like okay, if it didn't happen then, it might have happened the next year. It might have happened the next year. You know, like because there was the, you know they at least had an awareness that this is what they cared about so much, right? Like, you know, if you put all the time, you know, if you put the, we're willing to put that much time into this huge D&D campaign, you know, it yeah. shows that, like, it was, you were going to keep working on it no matter what, basically. Um, yeah, it was thousands of hours of design and then right. hundreds of hours of running it right. just to get better at storytelling and game design and setting and tone. I mean, I, I think in a slightly different universe, I'm a very happy successful person working at Wizards of the Coast sure. on like the D&D brand or the Magic the Gathering brand. Right. I think the fact that I ended up in board games was a interesting near adjacency. Right. Um, that's obviously done very well, but if you look at the games I've been that I always put up and say this is what I like to do, they're mm-hmm. all like role-playing games in board game form. Mm-hmm. Or sure. most of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Cool. All right. So you got the job and yep. you started working out on you started working on uh, you said it was like, like Trevor Pursuit type games? Like that was, was that how it started? Yeah, it was weird. My title was um, 
designer slash writer, and it stayed on as part of my title for um, long time. A long time at Hasbro. Um, the writing department was a different floor from where I started. The, like when game design was on the second floor and copywriting was on the third floor. And there was like all that corporate, like maybe a dotted line and you're a writer who works on games and no one really, and because no one knew when they were doing all this hiring, I was like, I don't want to be a writer. I want to be a designer. So yeah. I'm like, why don't I sit on the second floor? <laughs> why don't I report into this person? Like I sort of shaped the job being a little willful right. to, to set myself up to go. And I walk in on the first day and I've got uh, two projects assigned to me. Mm-hmm. I've got Monopoly Looney Tunes okay. and a remake of an 80s game called Scruples. Okay. I don't know if you remember, I don't remember Scruples. scruples no. It's a horrible game. I mean, <laughs> okay. uh, no, it's not that the game is horrible. It's horrible that it exists, and I'm happy to talk about it. So Monopoly Looney Tunes, and you know, like, people roll their eyes, like, oh, another Monopoly version. Well, Hasbro had had, at that point, one other official licensed Monopoly game, which was Star Wars the year before, when okay. they had re-released the movies for the 20-year anniversary. Mm. So this is the second one, basically? Yeah, this is the second one. Yeah. Now, there were knockoffs and stuff, but there wasn't, like, other companies doing it and licensing deals, yeah. and the, right? so it was still new. And I remember on my... First day, I made a Word document, which was here's everything in Monopoly, and here's it was like a table in a Word document, and mm-hmm. then here's what the license version would be. So, Park Place becomes this, and Boardwalk, and the mm-hmm. money is replaced by this, and the, and the movers of this. Just so, seemed like it. I remember my last day at Hasbro, fourteen years later, someone else was still using that template <laughs> on a different Monopoly thing for, like, for a different for a different thing. Monopoly thing. So it was very yeah, it was a translation. Yeah, it was just a translate. Uh, but I said, oh, there should be something. So I made a rule. I said. Uh, one special rule when I put it at the bottom document like we should have one rule that's different that makes this not just a repainting mm-hmm. and um, it was I'm trying to think exactly what it was it was doubles depending if you roll doubles ones twos threes fours five sixes lets you do some wacky different Looney thing, Tunes okay. type thing yeah, yeah, yeah. you could either take the role as it was or you could use the Looney Tunes power right and that was about as much as they'd let me mess with the, the sacred cow right right okay um now, Scruples was a funny game because it was a game meant to be played by couples and adults that always put one of the players into, like, an awkward situation. <laughs> okay. Right? Like, almost always involving sex or drugs or <laughs> infidelity or something like that. Like, okay, okay so, Soren, you're on a business trip. You're a, you're a GDC. And one of the people there um, hits on you, and, and you know you could totally get away with it. Would you? And then everyone has to vote of whether you're going to say yes or no. And then you answer, uh-huh. right? And then you're like, if you're married, you're like, no. And then your friend might be like, dude, you totally did that last week. You know, like it's, people get so into the game that they are going to start outing secrets or trusts. Or, uh, so this would have been a thing briefly in the 80s. And right. when I started was when um, <clears throat> the Monica Lewinsky scandal and trial and impeachment stuff was going on. So they just wanted to quickly capitalize on that by bringing it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because they were understaffed and because they were slow, but I don't even think it came out by the time I got on the pro- got hired and got on the project and did it like the moment it had passed. Right. Yeah. But what was really funny about this is they wanted to take some best of content. So like the first week or two, I'm just looking through these awkward questions. I'm like, okay, this is about sex, this is about infidelity, this is about drugs, this is about threesomes. And I'm like, okay, I got it. And they're like, well, well, you have to add add some new questions. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, we've got sex in every combination except by yourself. So I wrote a question about like if you were on a deserted highway and it was a straightaway and you felt aroused, would you pleasure yourself while driving? Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, you can't write that. <laughs> Jeez, that's a line too far. <laughs> and I'm like, the threesome question was fine. Wow. And that's wow. where I knew I was in corporate America. <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> that's funny. 
Um, all right. Uh, so, I mean, you worked on it. At this point, you just worked on just a ton of games, right? Like, you were kind of working on... Um, because you've talked about how many games you've been involved with at, at, Has at Hasbro, right? So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, I'm used to working on, like, a game for three years, and then you work on another game for three years, yeah. right? Like, so... Um, do you, do you work on like multiple games at the same time or like like you have how multiple, does this work multiple ideas at the same time so at the another thing that was really great is right when i started is um hasbro had just acquired avalon hill oh okay yeah and so they were starting up like the first year of avalon hill board games i'm like these are the games i want to get, get into. into okay cool and then mike gray who hired me and this other guy craig man ness and my friend Bill Sabrum, who was at the talk today and stuff, where also we play games at launch. And like, have you played Settlers of Catan? Have you mm -hmm. played this? And I was like getting this yeah, drinking was, from the fire hose. Yeah, I was curious because I figured at some point you would need to become aware of like, yeah, what's so, happened in board games. So yeah, I was working on the Avalon Hill stuff. And I was playing like German games, as they were called, mm -hmm. at launch. Or just classic games like Acquire by Sid Saxon. And Mike wanted to teach me and everyone, like, here's the game, here's the game. I learned like to play Go, and I learned how to play this, and I played Bridge. And I you know, just was reading books on chess and sort of absorbing all this stuff very quickly. In a way, now that sounds so nostalgic and wonderful. Right. Um, Did you find that you... Because it seems like you got really deep into role-playing games... But you maybe hadn't really been playing the best board games, so maybe you weren't wouldn't have naturally. Enjoyed. Yeah. Like, did you feel like you had discovered something that you didn't know was out there? Yeah, I, I, it was like one of those things. Like, oh, I need to know a lot more about this. Now, luckily, I'm working for Parker Brothers and Milton Bradis, so it's you know like Monopoly clones and right. taboo games. So I, I could hide for a little bit in terms of not knowing my game knowledge, or I didn't need it. Yeah. Actually, I was one of the only people that Hasbro didn't hire as a game designer who wasn't an industrial designer, hmm. who could like make plastic look good. Right. Because they're an offshoot of a toy company. Mm, yeah, to right. do toys, you need to be able to draw and think about molding and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was the only person who could write. Yeah. So I could come in and write card content and write rules. And I had a natural, from all my role-playing stuff, thinking about systems. Systems were no problem. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have the background lexicon of all of these other games. And within three or four months, I had you know played 70 new games and caught up and, right. and, and had a much better sense at that point. Okay. filled that in um so what's maybe the first game that you got to work on where it was something that you're like oh this is this is something that like i'm totally into and like i can like you know finally try to like do some design stuff that i'm passionate about well a lot of it's on teams and a lot of times i was sort of second designer mm -hmm. okay uh, which was great right i mm -hmm. really think that my time at hasbro was like a real good sense of being a uh like an apprentice to a journeyman sort mm -hmm. of experience, right? So uh, Craig Van Ness, who taught me a, a ton about games, mm -hmm. and he just left Hasbro a little while ago and is off doing his own thing. I was working on a game for the Avalon Hill line called Stratego Legends, which was sort of like a collectible Stratego game, right? Mm -hmm. You custom built your armies, and so it was deck building, basically, yep. you know, or CCG in that form. So coming up with powers and trying to find rules holes and coming up with, and then I was the guy who would come up with names and the background stories and all the role-playing stuff and write the rules. So worked on that. I helped Larry Harris finish up Axis and Allies Europe. Mm -hmm. So I was working on a traditional like tabletop war game. I had to write the rules for their version of diplomacy. Did um, they change diplomacy? They hadn't changed, but we wanted to make it more accessible. Sure. Right. So I had to become an expert on diplomacy rules so that I could try to make them more accessible. Um, there was another guy in uh, Battle Cry, Richard Borg's Civil mm -hmm. War game. Was yep. we were doing that, so I had like a front row seat to scenario design. Okay. There. So you got to do some of the scenarios for that when it came out. 
Or you, did, uh, you did some of the scenarios for that? I did thing? very little of that, but I saw the guy doing it and okay. would play test and sort of like saw how his brain worked. A guy named Steve Baker, who ended up being my boss for about 10 years. Right. Uh, so, you, you know, I, I had like my hands in a lot of stuff. And when it's like working at, at a Hasbro, like at that time, there might be, I'm trying to think, 60 or 70 games coming out in the line and 12 designers. Mm hmm. But games are always coming in into the line and getting dropped out of the line. And then every couple of weeks, inventors will send outside submissions that you have to evaluate. And you might say, there's something here. And then you work on it for a couple of weeks and you go, no, there's nothing there after all. Or you can't get the cost to work on something. So when I would say I've worked on games, if you're saying sat down and tried to make something work, it's right. hundreds. Mm -hmm. If it's how many did I feel like I had something that was pretty good, it goes down to maybe 150, which is... How many got to market that I can say I had something to do with? It's right. about 70 or 80. Right. From either all of it to I did the naming for that or I did the rules. Actually, if you include that, it's probably over 100. Right. Um, wow. So at any given time, you've got various things in various states of planning. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it's hard for me to go back because I would have to remember all the games I worked on, yeah, all the yeah. games I had a hand on. I mean, no, no, well, I'm just saying, not that you're expecting me to, but people said, how many games have you yeah. done? And I'm like... <laughs> I don't know how many times I sat down for a day to try to make an adventure submission work, and it didn't. I don't have those records. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or does that count? Does that, right, sure. It's very uh, amorphous, yeah. Um, okay, did at some point then, though, you get a chance to, like, you know, have a specific game that you were, like, really excited about that you're like, okay, and you get to leave this one. You get to start, you know, kind of start it up and, you know, make it work? Or Yeah, well... I was doing that on other things that are less sexy, right? Okay. Trivial Pursuit, Genesis 5, right? I get to pick the writers and hire okay. them and do things. And then I made a really, really cool, I forget all the details now, but pod racing game for Star Wars Episode One because, of course, it's going to be this huge success. And after the first round of games went, we were going to want another bunch mm -hmm. of games coming out. And that was like none. And the movie came out and everything was bombing and the games were bombing and they just canceled all those lines. Oh, right? So I had led a project mm -hmm. and... I wish I had the prototype. Well, mm -hmm. one, it's probably not very good, but I thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, and two, I could you know, see what I was thinking. So I was like a complete game, ready to go, balance, different cards, different variable player powers. And they're like, nope, you're done. Mm -hmm. So I had led stuff, but I hadn't gotten on yeah. shelf. Yeah. The first game I remember doing that, I did myself and did the rules and you know, sort of this was my project and it was a little project was for a Disney movie called Atlantis Pathways of the... Uh, the movie was called Atlantis. The game was called Pathways of the Deep. And it was a little tile-laying game where you were trying mm -hmm. to be the first one to get your sub to the center of the board. It was okay. probably, like, honestly, a $10 price point. All right, Atlantis was coming out. Everyone at Hasbro knew it wasn't going to be the next big thing, but we right. had a contractual obligation to do some <laughs> games. Yeah. Um, so they were going to do the signature game, as they called it, which, again, I designed start to finish. And they're like, this, game's, this movie's going to be a dog, and the deck got dropped. <laughs> Um, and they're like, but we'll do your little tile laying game. And oh. it was only after it got on the shelf that I'm like, oh, that's the first game where like, it wasn't based on Clue and it wasn't mm -hmm. based on this and it wasn't that I was second chair. Right. So that was about two years into my right. career. Okay. But most of the time at Hasbro, it's take this license or this product and do something new with it. Right. Well, I remember I within I just dove in and within a month I'm like I had a kind of a fun Clue card game mm -hmm. that I played. Just like passing cards around and doing stuff. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it was just, turns out, just never got to market, which is fine because I'm sure they weren't as good as I thought they were. Mm. Yeah. Um, were you developing? I mean, at some point, do you feel like you were starting to develop a theory of design, like something about 
the way you looked at at making games um like were you starting to think about like how to become better at the job yeah it's interesting i worked in that parker brothers building from fall of 98 through april of 2000 and then they just did another bullshit corporate move and moved everyone back to the milton bradley plant Mm. 100 miles away that they had moved people from three years earlier and the interesting thing about that move is it's it was um, a year and a half roughly after i started Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the end of, in my mind, like the real rookie phase. Right. Right. When I landed there, I had just, I bought a house and mm-hmm. I had a one-year-old kid and there were new people being brought in to replace the poop people didn't move. And I was already there. So in my mind, that's when I became like the sophomore and right. could, I don't know if I had a theory, but I had a little bit more comfort in that I knew the system and I knew what was going. And I worked in that building for 11 years. Mm-hmm. I have a philosophy now of how I design, but mm-hmm. I don't know when it when it came. When it came, right? All I right. Would, well, let's talk about that. Like, what's what's your philosophy? Well, that's I don't know if I can encapsulate. I'm trying to think. Like, I know how I like to design a game, right? Mm-hmm. I I liked I design as an experienced designer. Like, what do I want the players to experience? Mm-hmm. Are they afraid? Are they fearful? Are they confused? Mm-hmm. Um, is and this, you know that from the beginning. Like, is that like one of the first things? Yeah, yeah. That's my that's my like, feel. I want them to have this exp- emotion during the game. Yeah. Um, I have a game that's coming out, you know, from when we record this this year called Mountains of Madness, mm-hmm. which is based on a Cthulhu novel. And I was mm-hmm. trying to do the traditional um, translation. It takes place in Antarctica. So it's like, well, you've got resources and you've got dogs and you need to move to things and you're searching. And it was sort of this very procedural, completely acceptable game. Yeah. But it was just uninspiring. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was in production. Right. And I had been contracted separately by Z-Man, the publisher, to help with production because it was a complicated game mm-hmm. supposed to design. And there was some miscommunication about what my role was because they thought I was going to project manage it. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was just going to be there as a consultant if right. there were problems. So if everything was struggling because they're waiting for me to do it and I'm waiting for them to do it. <laughs> right. So then I jumped in. It turns out I'm a very, very bad project manager, okay. which I kind of knew then and this confirmed it. So I would talk to someone in Germany, someone in Quebec, and someone in China mm-hmm. and be like, here's what we're doing, right? Here's what's going to happen. Everyone's good. And they're like, yeah. And then three days later, nothing we had talked about would happen mm-hmm. because of a language barriers and cultural barriers. Right. And I remember saying out loud, this is what it feels like to go crazy. <laughs> and I went, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah. I want this feeling I have. Uh-huh. That's the game. Right, like well, we all talked about something. We all had a plan, mm-hmm. and then no one did what we talked about, and you, and you can't figure out why. Mm-hmm. And so I took that and threw away the old game and made this, and it came together really quickly because I had that sense of this. This is what I want. I want players to just be like, I, what? How? How did we talked about this? How did you? And you're like, I'm sorry, I had the wrong idea. Right. And so it became a game about communication and miscommunication and communicating under duress. And so how do you how do you pick out the game? You know, like how did you get to the game mechanics from that idea? Well, one thing that I do is um, I try to just make something as fast as possible because mm-hmm. then one of the I've taught game design now, and I tell people you can just agonize over the theoretical problems, like, well, there's going to be a problem with the second tiebreaker in the three-player game. Right, and it's right. like you don't even know if your game really, works, right? Yeah, like, yeah. stop. And then I said, play it and just have this awful moment where it doesn't work, but now you know why, mm-hmm. or now you know what you were trying to do and why it didn't, and you can decide. Is it bad entirely, or do I just need to do it in a different direction, or do I need to tune it up? So I I basically just came up with an idea. I took the card deck and just took out the numbers two through six, 
Okay. And I didn't do, to take the aces because people don't think those are. And I just made up tiles that would have two numbers, uh, two um, suits on them, like let's say clubs and spades. And it would say like five clubs and, and nine spades. And then mm -hmm. we would turn it over and players would have to be like, well, I can play the six of spades. You'd say, well, I can play the three. And like, okay, well, that'll make a nine. So I'll, we'll play those cards. And we would talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then after we were done talking, we would play the cards we said. Right. And I'm like, well, there's something there, but it's way too easy. Yeah, sure. Um, and I had some interns, and they said, what if there was a 30-second timer? And I'm like, there we go. Right. Okay, so now you have this, you know, you have plenty of time to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You have this thing going that someone's looking at, so you it creates stress. Yep. And I really like the numbers two through six, not one through five, because it's just a little bit of off math. Yep. And then... I said, well, what if the numbers you're going for are like a range, right? Like I need four to six and of this and six to eight of that. So there's just a little more confusion of I can mm -hmm. do six, like six of six of this one or six of, of that one. That one. Yeah. Um, and so I played around and that basically worked as the very, very easy settings. That's when you start the game. Yeah. I still see people mess it up. Right. Okay. Right. Because um, what happens is when the timer, you don't, you can't play anything while the timer's going. So you can't be like, here's the five. You have to talk about it. And then when the timer ends, everyone just has to put in at the same time. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. And so like, like we might agree that you're not playing anything, but you thought you heard it. And then also we all play stuff and you still throw something in. I'm like, what do you just do, man? Mm -hmm. Like, and then you're like, and then you're over. Um, I think at the beginning is you had to make the minimum and then that wasn't good. And then I said, you have to hit it exactly. And that was too hard or too weird. And then I made it like a range mm -hmm. and that worked. So then what happens is as you play the game, you get um, insanities. And so you would get an insanity that might say, um, you only talk to the person on your right while the timer is running. Oh, and you don't, are you the only person who knows about your insanity? You, you know that, you, I know you have an insanity card and I know all insanities happen while the timer is running, uh -huh. but I don't know what it is. Okay. And then it becomes pretty obvious mm -hmm. that you're just talking to the person on your right, but I have to remember to ask, ask Soren, what he has for cards right and then the other person has to do it. So not only do you have to remember to do it but that just takes up time right but meanwhile the person you might be talking to won't answer you until you their insane might be like i will not listen or address anyone unless i'm my name is said first mm -hmm. yep. so that i might be like hey hey <laughs> Lindsay," and then they're like what i'm like oh okay they need to have their Right, right. So I had to remember to talk to you by talking to Lindsay, and Lindsay, I have to say Lindsay to get her attention so she communicate, and then you Is have the to... range of insanity cards small enough that like people will know kind of what they all are, or is it like so big that you know it's have to somewhere in between, okay. and that was the struggle, right? Sure. Once I had that, and it's like I, I knew I had something there, and mm -hmm. like, do you layer on? Do you have multiple insanities, and what insanities are funny, and what are not funny? Yeah, like amusing versus annoying, I guess, yeah. rather than funny. And so then it was about a year of like because I'm working on a couple things of how yeah. it works and what's the victory condition and how do you escalate the tension yeah. and what's the price for failure. Yeah. What's so, so, I mean, here's a question, which is like, you know, you're developing this game and, you know, you know, one way is, you know, the more, most, most basic way is like, I'm going to make every time I'm, I'm going to make a change because it's going to make the game more fun. But then the way, other way you're kind of looking at is I'm making this game because I wanted to, I'm making this change because I wanted to support the feeling of insanity. Right, like, how do you keep? Is I'm not sure if I'm asking that the, the best. Yeah, way. no, I mean, you know, I, I'm saying like, there's kind of two different. Like, there might be a time when it's like, this would make people have more fun. The fun is a very such a difficult word, right? As I'm sure you're. Aware. Well, well, but the um, but the question is, is 
what's making it fun. Right, exactly. Right. It, yeah, no, if the insanities are a burden, mm-hmm. people are like, oh, I hate this part, right? If people are like, I don't like this insanity, or I, well, I want to do this, mm-hmm. then something's lacking. So the game sort of grew and collapsed in scope at various places of, okay, this is too bookkeepy or this is that. And I wanted a little bit more. I didn't want it like pure party game. Yeah. So there's some decision-making, like you get these tokens, these leadership tokens that you can choose to spend to like get 30 more seconds if you realize as the leader of the turn, like no one knew what we were doing. Right. So you spend one and every time you get to the end and you have to refresh your pile, you lose one. So you start with, I think, six and then five right. and then four. And if you run out, you lose. So it's... Right. You get 16 times to sort of be, to fudge the rules. Yep. So then I had to make it hard enough that you wanted to use them. Yeah. Um, yep. I guess the way you could look at it is like every game needs some sort of resistance. And in this game, it's that kind of like you're not sure what's going on. That's the resistance. And, yeah. And then you, you know, and then you're going to give players tools to make it, you know, have a more pleasurable experience trying to like achieve, you know, get over the resistance. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, basically it's a co op game. And I tell people yeah. it's a co op game. Um, everyone's on the same team. No one's a traitor. If someone is acting strangely, it's because they've gone insane and they're trying to help. If you are acting crazy and trying to help, still try to help, but with the restriction that's on there, you're not trying to sabotage it. You're just ineffective. So it's a game of increasing ineffectiveness. Hmm. Um, And, you know, there were some great insanities that just didn't make it into the final game. Like, while the timer's running, I will hide under the table. Which was really funny when you playtest it. And then the third time you have to go under the table, it's not that funny. And then you realize, am I really going to ask people, playing? like, what if there isn't a table? What if I've got a bad knee? Yeah. What if, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm claustrophobic? And so you started asking these questions. Even at the end, it said, like, you know, the insanities are meant to be a fun restriction. If you get one that, for whatever reason, is a burden or more uncomfortable, just discard it and, right. and draw another one. And then to your point, I made insanities a lot of um, similar. Mm-hmm. So if you get one... And I played a lot. The question is, oh, does he have Which the one where he he's yeah. like somewhere in front? He's like, you multiply every number that you say by four, and the other one is like by eight, <laughs> or by two, or by four. I right, forget. Sure, so yeah. if you're like, I can handle the twelve, right. and you're pointing at a six, I'm like, okay, he's got the doubling one. But if like if you don't point at something, like, is he at the double? Does he have the triple? Mm-hmm. I know it, there's no twelve in here. Yeah. So his numbers are all suspect. Meanwhile, the timer's going down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Cool. So that'll be out this year. I'm all excited right. about that. Well, sounds interesting. <laughs> um, all right. Well, maybe we should jump back to the the Hasbro period. Yeah. And maybe hit so hit kind of the some of the you know we're, I want to kind of build towards like what happened with like the legacy games. Yeah, right? sure. So like maybe talk about a couple a couple games on the way um, that were you know important. Uh, big one for me was Betrayal at House on the Hill. Sure. Yeah. That came onto my desk right when I made that move that I talked about in 2000. Mm-hmm. And it was an inventor submission. It had been the uh, the inventor, uh, Bruce Glasgow, a professor, had submitted it to the old Avalon Hill. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere like in 98, and somewhere in the corporate move, the prototype got lost. And this thing is just a beast to make. And it would have been a, even more of a beast to make in the late 90s. So he kept trying to follow up. And no one wanted to admit it was lost. But I guess it was. And so he made another one. Mm-hmm. And so that ended up arriving in summer of 2000 Mm -hmm. and I was told to evaluate it and determine whether it could be like a fun horror Parker Brothers game or whether it should go on the Avalon Hill line and I played it and very quickly I was like no no this is a it's too complicated for families but this is great Mm -hmm. Um, and most of the when we talk about the feel and everything most of the feel was in the game like Mm -hmm. 
we play a game for a while and then different haunts come out and there's different floors on the house and characters had four stats but the actual and i don't have a copy of the original but my memory is the actual mechanics were sometimes you rolled high and sometimes you rolled low mm-hmm. and the way that rooms came in is you had a hand of room tile so you like knew where the kitchen was and uh-huh. which doesn't feel like exploration so i spent about a year trying to redo that and then put in a lot of the systems now that tried to take the original idea and just streamline it down mm-hmm. and during that time Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast and then decided that the Avalon Hill line was a better fit over at Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. And this was, I had said, part of a Wizards of the Coast line. So I was like, please, can we keep it? I'll I'll, I'll make it a Parker Brothers game. Like, don't take this from me. I've just spent a year <laughs> right. and this is my favorite thing I've ever worked on. It still is actually, I think, my favorite thing that I've ever worked on. Really? Because I was young enough that it was like the first time I got to do something big and different and creative. So yeah. there, it wasn't that... I'm more satisfied with other projects. Like I think Risk Legacy was like a bigger departure and Pandemic Leg has been more like critically acclaimed sure. and all these sorts of things. And they all have different satisfaction. But when you talk about just fun, mm-hmm. it was like, I can do anything. And I had, you know, like, wow, this is great. Like it was really a chance for me to see how big I could push myself, right? Yeah. So what's what's great about Betrayal on House on the Hill? What I think is great about Betrayal House on the Hill is it does a really good job of generating a short story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always make a balanced short story, mm-hmm. but if, you know, remembering my role playing background, like mm-hmm. it is a self-contained horror role playing adventure in mm-hmm. a box that no one knows what's going to happen. There's no DM. There's no here. Like I might be the traitor. I might not be the traitor. And it seems to somehow take these tropes. Even if the game ends up, one particular game ends up being imbalanced, there's enough tropes that you'll have these just these moments of like the little girl suddenly finds a shotgun and shoots the professor because she's gone evil and he falls over the balcony and, you know, lands in the ballroom. But then someone steals his stuff and kills. Like, you just get these moments. So did you favor, like, I want, you know, I want crazy stuff to happen. I'm not necessarily concerned about whether both both sides feel like they had an equal chance at, like, playing it out or, like... No, I, I wanted it to be equal signs mm-hmm. and actually when i was trying to simplify it to be a parker brothers game mm-hmm. i had like an easy version and an intermediate and a hard one and certain cards and certain tiles came out and certain haunts came out so that you could play the really balanced ones at the beginning and what i was trying to do is i gave everyone and i'm trying to remember this an individual score you got points for doing things so at the end we had the most points one mm-hmm. so the trader could get points for doing things and the explorers could get points for doing things so i didn't have to balance whether the trader won or not like mm-hmm. if the trader killed four out of five people mm-hmm. they might still win the game even though you know they've lost the camp the the story not necess- not likely because mm-hmm. you got a big point boost for winning so that was me fudging my way out of how to perfectly balance it okay um and it worked well, and I went down and I pitched it to Barnes and Noble, and they were interested, and the graphics were coming along, and we had like sales orders, and then Hasbro just one day just came in and like, no, sorry, we're giving it to Wizards of the Coast. I'm like, I'm almost done. I got sales. I've done this. And they're like, sorry, pack up your stuff, send them some guy named Mike Selinker out at Wizards of the Coast, and then he got it, and he got the original game, and he called me. He's like, wow, you made a few changes, <laughs> and then uh, there was I was 99% devastated. I remember I came home and my then young daughter and my then wife were just like, what happened at work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it took like weeks for me to get out of that funk. But that 1% part of me was, 
this thing can't be balanced and no, it's no longer my problem. <laughs> <laughs> this is a difficult game anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's cool. I mean, the one, so I've never actually played Betrayal, mm-hmm. um, but the one thing I'm aware of is I just hear that like the rules don't quite fit. <laughs> like there's a couple things that just aren't quite. Uh... No, it's it's got role playing roots in the sense that you always end up with a situation where there's rule book, but you have to interpret it right because right. it's just got so many things going into the meat grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's that one percent part of me going, "Well, I didn't do the final rules, <laughs> so so you can't blame me for that." But no, I it it needs to be someone in the group needs to be comfortable lightly gming it, right. Right. right, like when you look at the haunts and you look at this and you're like, well, how does that work? And someone's like, I think it should work this way. So it was a bit of a blind spot for me because it's what I always did when I GM'd anyway, or played right. games. I would just interpret, but I can see how people who So how, how do the do rule that. systems generate great stories in that game? Um, generate, well, everything is just a series of tropes. Mm-hmm. So there's an adult male, an adult female teen male and female and child male and female six characters and both of them have like two different characters you can play yeah so the adult male can either be a professor or a priest so immediately you're entering a haunted house immediately mm-hmm. you've just got a whole bunch of horrible like possibilities yeah possibilities there and the the adult woman one of whom is a um like a fortune teller mm-hmm you know, and so, and then, you know, just get these little kids, like, first of all, little kids, you know, one's got a teddy bear, like the girl. So you just get these sort of iconic things. And then the, the teen males, either the football meathead or the track star. Right. That it was the cheerleader or the nerdy girl. So like everything was a trope. Right. And then the room tiles are tropes. Mm-hmm. The dining room, you couldn't go in a room and it just says like charred room, mm-hmm. abandoned room. Um, crypt like everything was like I don't want to be there yeah. and then when you enter rooms you draw ran from a random deck of event cards or you get random items and they all seem to allow you from a relatively simple rule system at that point to just fill in all the gaps because of mm-hmm. these tropes because you're using stuff that people are already so familiar with they just automatically make these connections basically. yeah so for yeah. example on the very first turn or, or early in the game the six year old girl could wander off with her teddy bear mm-hmm. find a room with a safe uh-huh. roll the dice well enough to open the safe and find a gun and a dagger inside. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, well, this is going well. Like the six-year-old, like, how did the six-year-old open the safe? Does yeah. she know what's in the safe? Now you've got an armed six-year-old. Yeah. Like, I hope she's not the... And then if she becomes... And then it seems like more often than not, like she would just a random chance become the traitor. And you're like, yeah. well, of course she's the traitor. She walked right into the house, found the safe, got the gun and the knife. We should have suspected. <laughs> it all makes sense. It all makes sense now. And so yeah. it just gives you enough of those that you can fill it in and all make sense. Now there are parts that don't make sense or parts that you forget. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a, a something that was kind of in the original game and then I tweaked it and thought it was great, which is you start on the, the ground floor and you can get to the upper floor and there's a basement landing. It's like three different zones, but you don't know how to get to the basement. And if you get there, you don't know how to get out. Mm-hmm. You have to find the tile. And then there's a number of event cards or rooms. Like if you find the collapsed room, you'll fall down. If you find the coal chute, you'll slide down Mm -hmm. and almost always there's one person who ends up in the basement like kind of wondering like hello (laughs) hello anyone and they're entering an operating laboratory and a crypt (laughs) i don't want to be down here hello excuse me (laughs) and um so you get to do some light campy role playing i was just playing it six months ago with Mm -hmm. my family and i was a professor Mm -hmm. and i ended up tumbling down into the basement yeah and then the haunt comes which is like this 50 random things which actually tell you 
who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. And I ended up with a good guy. I couldn't find my way back up there, but there was someone in the crypt, the room I happened to be in, which was like a, was like a zombie queen or something yeah. like that. And so I just started role-playing like, oh, didn't expect to see you here. Like, he doesn't realize yeah, what's, yeah, what's going, going on, on because everything is just stereotype, stereotype, stereotype. <laughs> and we were having fun about this professor who didn't even realize that he was in a zombie movie. Right, right. right. Can you show me the way out? <laughs> Help me, please. Yeah. yeah. I need um, some assistance. <laughs> and um, I don't know. So it just does all that. Now, where it breaks down is if the haunt comes out too early or too late or certain rooms are in play or not in play then the haunt can be like just dead on arrival. You look at it and you're like, oh, we have no chance of winning. We just spent, it, well, if it goes well, you spend about 10 minutes building the house and then about 30 minutes playing the haunt. But if you spend 20 minutes building a haunt and then it's all over in two, you like, there's yeah. a little bit too much variety, right? So is there a tension between basically variety and tightness? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, there's, yeah, there's a but variety and tightness. If right now I, you know, 31 year old Rob mm-hmm. wanted the, anything could happen in a box. And I knew that I was going to have to contain it at the end mm-hmm. to get some tightness back in. And then I didn't get a chance to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, 40, how old am I? Almost 47 year old Rob mm-hmm. is like, mm, we could have, we could have put <laughs> some parameters on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's still out of all the games I've worked on. Many of them I never want to play or I'm tired of them or there's not much. This is one I still wouldn't ask to play. Right. We'll play or even be like, Hey, I want to play that. I think partly because it wasn't my original idea. And I, I didn't do the hard part of thinking of it and the hard part of balancing it. I got to do the fun middle. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Tales of Arabian Nights, um, mm-hmm. in a sense, like there's such a wide variety of space. And whenever I play that, I, lo- I love that game. And, but every time I play with people, I, I sit them down and be like, okay, do not worry about winning the game. Like, that's not what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, there's a lot of similarities in the sense that it, it's Tales of the Arabian Nights to me is just a fantastic story generator. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even tell you what the game is. Yeah. Like I played it once. I'm like, this is great. Well, I've never finished it. Mm-hmm. Like you play for a while until someone's like, are we done? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I just wish that that game had like 20% more game or 10% mm-hmm. more game to contain it. Cause I would bring it out all the time. Yeah. 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 Cool. All right. Um, anything else doing until we, up um, well, I, I, that time early time I worked about? on a uh, risk 2210 yep. AD with Craig Van Ness and that mm-hmm. got like, some buzz and some popularity. Mm-hmm. I was working on Betrayal at House on the Hill. And then there were uh, there was a game that I worked on with Craig for Star Wars Episode Two, which was Epic Duels, mm-hmm. which was like a two-person deck fighting game in the Star Wars thing. Like you could do Darth Vader versus Anakin, you know, which makes no sense. But um, that in general was a good game, but for a licensed tie-in, the scene is a, a great game. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was starting to learn mostly under craig's like tutelage of how to really do this and felt like okay i can do this now i can do bigger things and i can do licensed things so now we're about three or four years and two no actually two or three years into the career mm-hmm. um and then a couple years after that started working on heroescape mm-hmm. so a big sprawling game where right. uh, steve baker came up with the plastics and Craig came up with most of the game and I came up with, it did a lot of dev work, I guess, sort of design dev work, like the world and the rules and the character powers and the scenario building and everything like that, which was a lot of fun. But right around 2005, the fun started to drop off year after year at Hasbro. Just in general. 
Um, yeah, the gaming world was kind of changing, mm-hmm. and Hasbro was choosing to go simpler and dumber and more conservative at a time when these Euro games were getting bigger and bigger, and the designers like us were downstairs saying... You were seeing a lot of exciting things happen outside of the company. Yeah, yeah. and we were like, we should, conservative. we should do were this. Were they actually getting more conservative, or was it just relative to everyone else? Because it seems weird that they would pull back. Or maybe it's like they couldn't compete with like the people who were being able to be more experimental. You know, I, I don't know. I'm just... Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things, but somewhere between 2004 Five in 2009 there was a big cultural shift at Hasbro where they became more conservative wanted to go easier with games yeah. at a time when they were like abandoning the middle of like these yeah. lightweight strategy games if you think right. of Ticket to Ride that would have been a Parker Brothers game in the sure. 70s yeah, yeah, yeah. and they were going away from um, there was also a game in the 70s called Bonkers mm-hmm. dirt simple path game but it was kind of fun because wherever you landed you put a token down that might say ahead two or back three Right. so the next person landed there would land there and then go ahead three and then back two and then forward two. Like you would ping pong around the board. I was, and I tried to bring that back around this time, and we did some testing. Everyone's like, it's way too complicated. Some dumb it down. I'm like, what? right. So there was this sense that they were just getting super conservative with like complexity, or right. what they called complexity. And I always said, it's not about complexity. It's about accessibility. We just need to make the rules better. Yeah. And they're like, no, people have less free time and want quick experiences and on the go and. I did a bunch of DVD games, which were kind of fun in retrospect, but at the time were annoying because I, I knew they weren't going to last, and it was getting away from yeah. this. Like we've been doing Heroescape, and we've been doing Epic Duels, and Avalon Hill Line, and Betrayal, and I don't want to necessarily do these. Although, like I said, in hindsight, there was some good learnings and some good games in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so those lasted a little while, but so by 2007. I've been at the company nine years, and I felt like nothing that the, none of the games we were doing were good, and Heroescape was going away, and DVD yeah. was kind of boring. And I actually made a move um, to a different department. Hasbro had just signed a deal with EA mm-hmm. to for EA to do. Um, I remember that I was at EA at the time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to do you know digital versions of Hasbro's games. Yeah. And so there was a new group being up, founded at Hasbro, which would be a liaison to it. And the job I was promised was like the creative brand guru for Hasbro to be able to talk to with the EA designers and say, you know, here's how a Monopoly game should feel, or here's how a Clue game should feel, or if you're changing that, this doesn't work, and here are the issues that don't work digitally, and and kind of be like the person on the inside who could talk creatively. Right. The job I actually got was like associate producer. Okay. Managing calls and spreadsheets and soon as that was the actual title. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I got on a phone call or any meeting with EA and they heard associate producer, I was completely ignored. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, I was 37 for a job that most of the time is filled at 22 when you don't have experience and you're like, here, take some notes for us. You know, the right. grownups are talking. Yeah. So I lasted four months mm-hmm. at that. And I was going to just, I'm like, I can't go back to my old job. Right. Sort of tail between legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I left because I knew like we were doing bad stuff and I was bored and yeah. it was frustrating. So I'm like, that's not going to change. But it just got happened or maybe it was six or seven months by the time this all came together. I could go back to my old department and it was at a higher level just because mm-hmm. someone else had left. And then it was like, okay, this is worth going back to. But then HR was having trouble saying, he organized this whole thing to get a promotion. I'm like, yes, I took a job <laughs> that I hate. <laughs> right. To Well, that to knowing this guy would quit. Yeah. Um, so I went back, but really at that point, it was 2000, 
late uh, late 2008 early 2009 like i i wanted to leave yeah like i was done and the big thing that happened um between around this time or just before was that i really think the iphone mm-hmm. killed hasbro or killed family gaming at the time mm. because family games or casual games was always something that mom saw as like a nice healthy thing for the family to do together and, yeah. and console gaming was something that your son did where you shot people yep and but it didn't count um you wanted to get the game family around the table but now mom had a smartphone in her pocket and her kids could play games all day long that were like somewhat wholesome and somewhat yeah, fun and she was okay with it but right? she was okay with it so yeah. when you get at night and mom's tired and doesn't feel like learning rules and has a glass of wine in her she's not going to pull out that board game like she did and that everyone was playing the iphone so hasbro at this point like tripled down on simple 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 yeah um and i was like kind of stuck i had gotten a divorce in 2005 mm-hmm. i couldn't move child support payments the, mm-hmm. the money's decent the benefits are great at hasbro mm-hmm. but it was like i don't know what to do yeah right no ideas were good and i think between when i came back in 2009 and when i left in 2012 i did exactly two games for wow. them one was uh, trouble cars three okay and the other was risk legacy wow all right well, go together well <laughs> uh yeah so when we were talking about what you're working i was working on a ton of stuff right and it never went anywhere yeah like no one wanted to do it everyone was like in this sense of were you, you were pitching projects that were too complex for them basically or they would pitch it to us they'd be like how do we redo operation uh-huh. or how do we extend it everything became a brand okay operation's a brand Mm-hmm. what's this guy on the table his name is sam what's his story mm-hmm. you know and i would be fun i'd come up with stories and this and the here's the key to operation and here's what we could do and we'd come up with eight different products like we like these three i'd work on those three we like this one i'd work on the like operations too smaller brand we're not going to push it after all yeah. and in nine months have taken gone by well um yeah. so it was getting just i was getting increasingly sort of checked out by this and we knew that they were going to move us to rhode island yeah did you wait did you work on the 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 risk black ops though i did that was before that, that was, was before you went oh okay. um yeah that was right before i moved to the digital group or okay. just after so it was sort of my the height of the sort of discontent with hasbro which mm-hmm. is they came and they said um that they wanted to redo risk mm-hmm. to make it more strategic and faster okay like fat no make it faster but don't dumb it down yeah so I made what was going to be a redone version of Risk. Mm-hmm. Now, what they didn't say was make it simpler, which they should have, and I should have known. So I added things in it that made it faster with these objectives yeah. and these powers, which I still think was a fun way to play the game. Yeah. And people liked it, and we were all on board. Mm-hmm. And so we came up with the idea of Risk Black Ops as sort of a... It was We weren't married at the time, but it was my wife and I. She was the art director, and I was the game designer. We came up with this idea. as like mm-hmm. a, make a thousand of these and sending them out as like a, right. a bootleg. Yep. Um, yeah, I got I got one of them somehow. I forget awesome. who connected me. But, yeah. and, um, uh, I got like five in my attic still. Like when times <laughs> get tough, I'll sell them for food. Yep. Um, and like all that sort of worked really well about building buzz and people like the rules. Mm-hmm. But we were also sending them to people who weren't going to be the family's doing it yeah playing it but then what happened was um just such a clusterfuck of corporate politics that mm-hmm. even now i'm sort of shocked by it um the marketing team and not that they were trying to do anything wrong thought that there was a real opportunity to talk to like 20 something like 
dude bros mm-hmm. who wanted to have bragging rights, like that they would, could their poker was really big at the time. Instead yep. of playing poker night, maybe they would play Risk, uh-huh. which I think is naive and was doomed to fail, but they talked everyone into it because I think a lot of the Hasbro management at the time were those sort of like dude bros. Yep. And they always loved to see trends. People are playing poker, we'll get them to play this. Sold, it was a really easy sell. The board had like a lot of colors which implied like imperialism like a rising sun of japan mm-hmm. but then the cover had a big tank coming at you which mm-hmm. everyone loved because it was aggressive and american but at the very like literally like one leak left in the project um we show it to the second biggest risk market and the biggest risk market per capita which is germany who's mm-hmm. like we cannot sell something with a tank on the cover <laughs> like horses are fine uh, tanks are what our grandfathers used to take okay. over europe like no yeah so we had to scrap the cover at the last minute. And then we're like, well, there are tank pieces. Mm-hmm. So we're like, well, let's just turn the pieces to arrows to kind of be like a battle map. Right. And you say that there's a lot of subtlety to arrows. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up going with arrows, which I still don't mind sort of conceptually, but you can't pick them up. Yeah. Right. So like we had to rush the pieces there. And then the cover was taken away from the U.S. office and given to the European office so that they would be more sensitive to European issues. Mm-hmm. Um. And they ended up coming back with a cover which had spearmen on the cover. Okay. So when the game came out, it was a game with spearmen on the cover with a board that looked like a World War II map with arrows being marketed to 24-year-old monster energy drinking bros instead of poker night. Right. And we raised the price $5. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wow, that, I didn't know about that. I remember when it eventually came out, I, saw the, I remember the arrows, and I was like, I was very confused because I felt like if you put arrows in a game... It must mean something specific. They imply direction. They imply that the, the direction you point them must mean something. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I really like Risk Black Ops. I thought like the changes that you guys made to it were fantastic. Oh, thanks. Because yeah. I never thought, I mean, I always thought I was done with, with Risk. Yeah. Right. But like putting the objectives in was great because it certainly turned a like kind of conservative defensive game in some ways into like a really aggressive mm-hmm. game where like you would extend yourself, you know, you would take these huge risks in the hopes that you get, yeah, you know, one of the objectives, you know, and that was the whole point, and that made it fun, made the game faster, and like, made it more about risk, right? Like, which seemed perfect. So, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with the underlying gameplay mechanics mm-hmm. um, and the objectives and everything you said. Thank you. It was what I was trying to do. It's yeah. ultimately not what they really wanted. It's just what they asked for. Yeah. Um, because then it put came out, and people were like, "I just bought this, and I was going to play it with my son, and you just changed it, it's and it has all this confusing stuff, and I wanted to play the game I played was as a kid, and yeah." Did it's they a, did they eventually revert? Like, if I go into a store now and I buy Risk, does it have? Yeah, within like two years. So I went. Uh, yeah, it. So it's like two thousand seven, let's say, mm-hmm. and then I went to the digital group and I came back. I guess one of the things I did in addition to those two games is we went back to like let's go back to classic Risk. This didn't work. Yeah. So um, Napoleonic or Colonial War yeah. tricorn helmet, you know, guy on the front, cannons and everything like that, and I still added something to try to make it play faster i think i put a card in which was a ceasefire like if you got to that card and then it was just over okay and whoever the most territories won and you shuffled it into like the bottom but the but the objectives are the objectives were gone so those were taken away within like two years wow um and then i saw it essen so that game that game's disappeared that's kind of a shame it's gone yeah um they couldn't run away fast enough (laughs) um but then i even saw a couple years ago at Essen Hasbro often has a, a booth there, and um, 
they had a different version of Risk. And there was someone who I knew was a designer, but he started after I left. And I'm like, hey, what, you know, I worked on a lot of games. What is it? And they're like, oh, we went back and we looked and like the height of our sales was like the early 80s version. Uh So we just redid the graphics and put that out. Like somehow magically it was the game that did it, not the time or the marketing or the pieces or the, and so I think it's about as, um, as classic as it can be now. You mean just the style? Like the way it looks? I know they went back to the gameplay. Like tweaks have been made over the years. Oh, so they just cut, they put the gameplay all the way, they reset it all the way back to the way it was when I was a kid, basically. Okay. But people had more time then. Yeah, people had more time. And it's not about risk. As you said, it's about like bunkering and letting someone else get bored and take a risk. Yeah, that's a shame. Because I thought it finally like turned into like a a game that I would be totally ready to say, hey, let's actually play this game. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like I did a lot of risk games at some point, and I don't know if it's still true. I realize I had done more risk games than anyone. Sure. Obviously not the original, but I'm like, I did like nine or ten, so I had a real good understanding of the uh, mechanics. Now, parts of that, of course, made it into Risk Legacy anyway. Yes. So, So, yeah, I came back down in 2009 Mm -hmm. to the department, and this was, like I was saying before, like the era of, what does this brand mean? Yeah. And so on a Clue brainstorm, and I've told this story a lot, like somehow I came up with what became the legacy idea mm-hmm. for Clue. Right. And then that didn't work. So we're, what does risk mean? And we were going to mm-hmm. do that brand. And I took the legacy thing and sort of applied it to risk at that time. And I had this whole toolbox of missions and objectives and event decks and things I had done for Star Wars games and Lord of the Rings games and various versions of the base game that could sort of be used as a starting point. Yeah. There was a different game that um, was more heroescape that I was working on Legacy and this other one, which was, um, it was basically faction-based. Okay. But it was more like you could have, like, I'm playing the, it was a, the Earth, what was it, like, the timeline cracked. Mm-hmm. So you could be a bunch of cavemen and I would be Napoleonics. Okay. And, like, our armies would behave so differently. Yeah. And still fight. So you just kind of picked like, and the idea is you'd we'd, we'd sell expansions and we'd have this, this various things. But that fell by the wayside mm-hmm. when Risk Legacy started. Okay. All right. So how? Um, so you knew when you started Risk Legacy, this was going to be a pretty unusual game, um, because you were trying something different. Um, yeah. I, I, and, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so how did you? I mean, how did you guys start? Like, how did you design the game? I wish I had the files from Hasbro, and maybe, right? You're not supposed to take any when you left, but I cherry-picked a few. Right, sure. But they're on some backup drive, and, you know, they're on old software that might not run anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I have the early versions of the game. I think before you were going for um, a lot more points, mm-hmm. right? At the final game, you had to get four object, four stars, Mm-hmm. And because um, there's four stars in the risk logo, that's literally oh. like my boss is like, hey, there's four stars here, so why don't we what reduce this down to four and make it tighter? Mm-hmm. Guys going like 12, and you'd get them from building this and doing this. And it was definitely like taking the objective idea and building it out. Um, you know, but the issue is, is like what resets and what's permanent. And because I had done so much with risk, it, it actually was pretty easy to take stabs at things. Sure. And figure out, like, okay, you get a faction, because I was working on that. Um, Time one, like, well, you get a faction that has a power, mm-hmm. and then you can do more powers. That's character building, that's role playing. And then you have a world, and I already had ideas for, like, you know, you put a wall up or you put a bunker, and then that, but it stays. And just started going from there and building it. 
and I and I did something which I don't think I would do in any other legacy games, which is sometimes a faction got a power, but sometimes you as a player right. got a power. So it didn't matter which faction you were playing this for, so this global power. Mm-hmm. But it makes it hard to get the leader in that case because I can't take the powerful faction away from you. I can't do something. It's like you have that power no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. It's, it still kind of works. Um, and it was probably six or nine months till we got something sort of good. Mm-hmm. And I remember I brought it to Gen Con, not to show the public, but a bunch of Hasbro people were there. So we played in like some hotel lobby where no one can see it. Mm-hmm. And Craig Van Ness again was like, okay, because he hadn't been working on it. He had been working on something, Battleship Galaxies. And so we were, we were in kind of in our late Lennon and McCartney stage where we were more trying to one-up each other than work together. <laughs> and uh, And... But ultimately, like, we would show each other and then give feedback and then yeah. be like, oh, you're right. You found it. Like, I thought it was going to be perfect. And he was the one who was like, nah, it's too much randomness. Like, you need to control this. Like, these are big changes and it needs to be in the player's hands. Too much randomness meaning the, um, the stuff that affected you permanently? Yeah, like the, kind it, of just the permanent change per, Permanent change can't be random. It can't be like you rolled three ones. Oh. Right? You roll three ones and your tro- troops got malaria, so put, like, a malaria marker on here. And right. you're like, that could be the first roll of the game. It could be the last roll of the game. It could be never... Mm-hmm. Right, and so I realized that these changes were big, and they infected the affected the flow of the game. So they, I as a designer needed to have a little more control of when they came out, or at least put them in the hands of the players. Yeah, I was gonna say because eventually what you moved to was like, well, there here's the thing that's permanent, and now you decide what what, what territory it affects. Or what. yeah, you got a scar card, right? And the scar card was random, but mm-hmm. you had it. Yeah, you could only hand out the scar cards if there were enough for all the players. So mm-hmm. they would sort of come and go and and come out and fits and, and spurts yeah and the um, stuff you put in down on the at the end of the game you know and the stuff you put down at the end of the game which right. was you know naming a city which was nothing really much or adding a coin to a card yep. to make it more powerful mm-hmm. um so that was the thing is the winner gets a big thing and the, but the losers still feel like they got to do something in the world right uh, like i like to start in europe because i named europe when i won it so i'm going to make the europe cards more yeah more valuable so i will get them more likely or something mm-hmm. or i will be there when i play them uh, I do remember, like, sitting and looking at all this, and my daughter remembers, she might have been 10 or 11 at the time, when she's like, what are you working on? And I said, I think I'm going to change something really fundamental about board games. Like, I knew it was big, and I was like, right. this this could work, mm-hmm. right? And I wasn't, like, not like, oh, I'm sure someone's done it. I'm like, no, I think I found this little corner that no one's mined. Right. And I was just... Deathly, I had these like weird fantasies, not fantasies, fears. Mm-hmm. It's not fantasy that like it was gonna be like Rent, where the guy who did the, the play Rent died mm-hmm. a week before it opened. That I was gonna be like <laughs> hit by a bus and <laughs> then never, never know, know like actually happened. whether it bombed or right, did well sure. or was accepted. Like I had this weird sort of morbid because when I finished, did you it, feel like, like you had no idea how it was gonna be perceived? Like you knew there was like a huge range of possibilities. It was, but... it was a huge range, and I hoped it would be accepted, right? But there was right. this line that um the velvet underground the band yes that everyone who bought their album went out and like, formed a band yet. yeah right they didn't have a lot of fans but the fans they had founded bands i'm yep. like this could be like a velvet underground thing where players don't really like it but i'll run into designers a couple of years later and they're like i played risk legacy i know it was a kind of a mess but it gave me an idea yep. to do something and that's what so i was, was going to be important whether or not it succeeded yes i thought that this could be important right and i was hoping it would be important yeah um and but I didn't know if it would be fun to play or yeah. commercially successful. Although all signs were pointing to it, 
Yeah. And I've never been in a position with a game of being that excited and that nervous and just wondering how it's all going to come together. Right. Um, except for that one. That was that was big because from when I kind of finished it and there's a whole story in and of itself, um, getting it through Hasbro and getting into the market was mm-hmm. actually a more impressive feat than designing it. I could believe that. You know, there must have been a lot of resistance to such a because that, that was the thing like when I when I first heard about this idea I'm like oh this is gonna be fascinating and like it's coming from Hasbro <laughs> like, no like, I mean like, like I said I wanted to the world? I wanted to leave Hasbro uh-huh. by then right like I didn't have a lot of um, sympathy for all the corporate machinations but I knew how to play them uh-huh. so I knew how to work the system and the way I got it through was by basically skunk working keeping it off official documents as uh-huh. long as humanly possible right. and doing stuff myself like there's a copywriter gets assigned to a game but I had been hired as a copywriter so I just told them I'm like I'll do it all myself because I didn't want them complaining to their boss about this stupid game and she's like okay great I'm like you might might have you proof it but I got it and then the art director well my then girlfriend now wife but we knew we were pretty serious like wasn't assigned to it but I'm like can you help me art direct it so the art director doesn't complain to his boss about this game and then I ended up you found ways to not have to ask for approval. Yes. Yeah. And then the big thing I did is when you make a game, especially with plastics, um, you have to make tools, steel tools. Yeah. And it costs money. It's a big investment. And I'm like, at some point, I'm going to have to ask for this investment, and that's going to kill all of this. Mm-hmm. But Germany's a big game market, and it's a big risk market. We discovered that with the, the tank incident of 07. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so I convinced the UK office, who liked the game, to sell it into the German office. Because I did think it would work there, and ended up bombing there. Um, Risk Legacy bombed over there. Yeah, but you know what they did? Quick aside is at Essen or something. They took the game, they opened up all the packets oh, and put it out to, put to, it all to show you. Look at what you get, and then you'll open this in the middle, and this surprise will happen. Like, <laughs> oh my god! Wow. <laughs> the Germans were literal. <laughs> like they were not into the magic of selling. Things. That's fascinating. So there's like a, I, that's like, anecdotal. I heard that. Okay. I wasn't there for. Well, it. but if it did poorly in the market, like there might yeah. be a cultural mismatch. Here, yeah, there was which... a cultural mismatch. I don't know if it was from that or something else or got lost in the shuffle. Um, um, well, I mean, but it's been such a phenomenon, like publicly. Yeah, that I kind of feel like if if it matched the German style, that it would it eventually would have taken off there. So that's... I think it did come back. I mean, the thing is, I've lost sight of that original yeah, Risk game because I left Hasbro after it. it's sold now, but... Um, yeah. Huh. And, um... Yeah. So I convinced Germany to do it, and then Germany's like, yeah, we think this will work, and we're going to take this many units, and we think it will sell, and it'll be good. So we'll pay for the tooling, and uh-huh. we need the final English files to translate. Uh-huh. So I could go back to Hasbro and say, or have someone else do it and say like, hey, Germany needs this game finished up because they're, they're going to be the lead market for it. And then people are like, what this? Oh, okay, we'll finish it up and send it over to them right. then. Right? Like, <laughs> they're asking me to get this thing done. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah, like, they're oh, got oh, done. Yeah, like, okay, uh, and then so that came out and then I could go back to, um, we had the English files done and we had tooling done. Mm-hmm. So now no one was going to make it until we had sales. So I went around to the different salespeople at Hasbro, most of them who have big accounts, like, you know, the Target. And they're like, yeah. we don't want it. We don't. And I'm like, okay. And so I found the person who did sort of hobby games, and they didn't want it. And I went to Wizards of the Coast, and they're like, we don't want it. Mm-hmm. So then I found a woman at Hasbro who was a toy seller yeah. 
who sold to hobby stores, mostly like figurines and collectibles and was a young up and coming salesperson Uh trying to do it. And I said, can I, I can't sell this myself. Will you be the salesperson? I was like, I don't know anything about games. I said, here I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a DVD mm-hmm. with a video on it of me selling the game. I talked to someone who I had met at Gen Con in the past who works for a distributor. Mm-hmm. I've set up a meeting with you with him at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Just walk in and put in the DVD and tell them they have exclusive rights if they want to sign up right now. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and she did. Uh-huh. And she called back and she's like, they took exclusive rights. They want like 20,000 as fast as possible. I'm like, great. So then I'm like, I had sales figures. And then, uh-huh. then the salesperson's like, I need to fill this. We had the files. We had the, um, we had the tools. Uh-huh. And so it was a go at that point. Wow. Sounds like you need to design a game about making a game at Hasbro. <laughs> <laughs> and around that time is when Hasbro was moving us to Rhode Island. Uh-huh. Um, so I knew that the whole thing was had a chance to, to kind of fall apart if someone was just looking down through a spreadsheet right, and saying, what's get rid of stuff. Get rid of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I asked project management. To, I said, look, this is all done. The sales are done. I've been working on this thing for two years. It's a passion project. Can you yeah. just take it off the line items? Because uh-huh. it's moved to the, the toy group, and they already have a say. It's so small. Just And I'm like, sure. And they uh-huh. removed it from the list. So they never was on the list to get killed. So they wouldn't notice it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but you know what the funny thing was I because there were a couple times despite all that where it did die and I had to bring it back or strong okay. arm and I was ready because I believed in it so much to go to the then president of the company if it was dead and say look here's what I want to do I want to quit Hasbro I want to license this idea from you mm-hmm. and I want to like start a company and make it myself because I believe yeah. in this and I don't know if he would have done it but I would have said look I'm quitting either way because right. this is the kind of the last straw and when it came out and did well, I was like, oh, I kind of wish that had happened, right? If right, I had sure, owned Risk Legacy yeah, yeah, yeah. and I had gotten royalties off it and profits and things like that, I've since got my career up and going. Yeah, but yeah. that first year of seeing people like, this is great, this is great, I'm like, I didn't make a penny. <laughs> but it, it enabled me to leave Hasbro yeah. on a, a ridiculous high note and, yeah. you know, and get things started. Yeah, yeah.